Good morning, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you. Uh, We are going through a series on the book of Ephesians, and what Paul is doing here in this book is basically presenting an alternative object of worship, that anyone who would receive this letter would be presented with the claims of Jesus, the claims of God, that he is worthy to be worshipped. And if you're new here, that's the purpose of this worship service, is that we would all, wherever we're coming from, whatever spiritual journey that we are, has taken us so far, that we would be presented with God incarnate in Jesus Christ as an alternative object of worship. And that our hope here is that we would all encounter Jesus in some way, in some intelligible way this morning. And as we come into our scripture reading, our New Testament reading, that is what Paul's interest is here as well. This is Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by, the revel- by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you would be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This is the mystery that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we encounter your word this morning. I pray that we would encounter Jesus. Many of us here believe that these words are true, that they are the gift of life, that they are revelation from you, and we're ready to live in light of them. We stake our our life's claim upon them being true. Others of us are wearied by claims of truth by claims uh, like these that we think of as domineering or oppressive, and we have vested interest in them not being true. Others of us don't, what know, don't know what to make of this. And Father, I pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, that we would find you opening your arms of welcome to us, that we would see your outstretched arms and know that you hold out for us not condemnation, not fear, not guilt, but freedom and liberation. And Father, would you be with us as we encounter your word together. Let it change us in the deep places of who we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Think about with me some of the names that we have for prisons. I would get in trouble if I mentioned some of them because a lot of them are not very pretty. They're not appropriate for audiences of all ages. The nicknames alone about prisons tell us that they're pretty awful places. They're pretty terrible places. Your day is scheduled for you. The food is terrible. You live in cramped quarters. You can't go anywhere. And oftentimes, they're extremely dangerous places to live. And once you go to a prison, you're marked for the rest of your life. You're an ex-con. It's dishonorable. It's a shameful badge to wear, and it makes it difficult to find work. It makes it difficult to, for people to trust you because you went to prison. Now, if you notice as I was reading, Paul opens this part of his letter with this almost proud, rejoicing declaration that he is a prisoner. To him, it doesn't seem to be a limitation, but it's this badge of honor that he wears. It's an indication that Jesus is actually at work in his life. It's hard to imagine this mentality. Maybe maybe we should think of a modern corollary of Martin Luther King writing from a Birmingham jail, or Nelson Mandela languishing in prison in South Africa for many years. And in those two examples, their imprisonment doesn't represent the end of their work. It doesn't represent failure. It's not shameful or dishonorable at all, but it's an indictment against the oppressive power structures that actually have put them there to begin with. Their imprisonment becomes a symbol. It's an upside-down type of victory. Now, Paul is literally in prison under the imperial power of Rome. He's in shackles. But he's careful to point out that first and foremost, that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's enslaved by his Savior. And there's enough in that just to have a sermon series, to get our minds around the fact that you are being enslaved by a Savior. And it's more than mere symbol for Paul. It's not simply God can use you in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's not always look on the bright side of life. What this is, is this is an inbreaking of heaven. It's a heavenly vision of Paul's reality. It's heaven's truth being spoken on his life at that moment. And from that perspective, he's in the perfect place. He's right where God wants him to be. And things are working out exactly as they should be in order for God's purposes on the earth and his manner of victory to be clearly seen. So just two points this morning, or two perspectives, and that is the Christian as prisoner. What does it mean for an individual to be a prisoner to Christ Jesus? And what does it mean more collectively for a church to be enslaved to Christ, to be a prisoner, for in town to be a prisoner of Jesus Christ? Let's look first at the individual. That's where Paul starts, that he himself is a prisoner. You may have remember the uh, American Express commercials that ran a decade or so ago that sold this card by reminding, reminding us that membership has its privileges. But for the church, for the Christian, the relationship we have with Christ turns this around. The membership that Paul was given, the prison prisoner status that he was given entitled him not to limitless freedom, not to access to the finest places, the best restaurants, famous people, 
But membership meant being drafted. It meant being conscripted into a huge purpose. It meant being made a prisoner of grace. This was his privilege. Now, why is Paul in jail? This sounds fairly innocuous. Why would he be put in jail for saying these types of things? Well, he's meddling with the power structures that existed in his day. And if you were at the in-town U class last week, Dr. White was talking to us about how changing the power structures in an institution or in a community creates opposition because there's vested interest by those in power to maintain the status quo. Paul is disrupting the power structure. Now, what is he doing? What's he saying that's so disruptive? That's a challenge to those who have power. Well, three times he refers to this mystery. Now, mystery, we need to realize, in English is different than it is in Greek. It's a good translation, but our word doesn't quite capture all that Paul is saying here. To us, when we think of mystery, we think of Sherlock Holmes, we think of Agatha Christie, or maybe Scooby-Doo. But in Greek, the mystery is an open secret. It's not solving a puzzle. It's something that is discovered by revelation. It's an open secret. It's not a mystery. Paul is not saying that this mystery is hidden and that no one could figure it out, that God has kept it to himself in some way so that no one could figure it out because the religious powers knew exactly what Paul was talking about. They definitely understood it, and they had to put a stop to it. Now, Paul says three times mystery. One is that it's made known to him by revelation, that God has given him access to this mystery. In verse 4, he says it's the mystery of Christ, that Jesus is somehow both the source and the substance of this mystery. But then Paul spells it out in greater detail in verse 6, and he says this mystery is that through the gospel, The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. The mystery is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through their union with Christ. And this somehow is enough to get you killed in the first century. But there's more. There's more to this mystery because as the passage says, tells us there is some sort of hiddenness to this mystery. In verse 5, it says it wasn't made known to people in other generations, in past generations, as it has been revealed now. And then in verse 9, it's to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. So there is a hiddenness. There is some sort of new revealing that's happening that Paul has been given access in a special way to this message, to this mystery that he's now speaking forth. And this has caused interpreters great consternation because through the Old Testament, though the Old Testament is not filled to the brim with this message of Jews and Gentiles coming together, we do have these promises of the Gentiles being brought in, that the gospel is not merely for Israel, for one ethnic group, but it's meant to be given for everyone. Think about Abraham's call. He's called out of Ur, out of his homeland, to receive God's blessings, then to be a blessing to all creation, to all nations. And our Old Testament text 
this morning that Jessica read. It talks about these outsiders being brought in, those that have no leverage on God because of their heritage, no claim upon them, upon God because of who they are, being brought in and receiving God's grace. So this is a subtext throughout the Old Testament that the goodness of God isn't restricted to one tribe or nation, but it's for everyone. So if it is a mystery, it's because the reader hasn't been paying attention. But what Paul is getting at here is this progressive nature of revelation that moves further and further into clarity from the Old Testament narratives. That you move from the Old Testament narratives to the wisdom literature, to the prophets, then to John the Baptist, then to Jesus, and then to Paul and the apostles. And as we know, by the time the revelation came to Jesus, as he said, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament narratives and prophets and law, there was something so threatening in that that it was enough to get him killed. But then Paul, Paul comes along and puts an even finer point on what Jesus was saying. Jesus incensed the religious establishment. They knew what he was getting at, but he acts out the mystery. He teaches about it, but it's often apocalyptically. It's often in parable. But Paul spells it out over and over in great theological detail, just what this mystery implies. And what he is saying, what he is picking up from the life of Jesus, what Jesus made possible in his death and resurrection, is Paul is teaching the end to the Jewish theocracy, the end to the exclusive role of Israel in God's economy. And the mystery that God has been unfolding throughout the scriptures and now that Paul is making very clear is the creation of this new, international, diverse, multiracial culture, eating together, doing ministry together, serving one another, serving the world together as full equals. In other words, and this is what gets him in trouble, there's no religious heritage that gives one a leg up on the competition. There's no spiritual devotion that makes one more acceptable to God than the person next to them. There's no system of doctrine that gives one claim and leverage over God. So what? So what for us? So we've been able to get to the bottom, perhaps, of this first century religious controversy. So what? 2,000 years later. The so what is because where you fall out on this religious controversy on either side makes all the difference. Paul is telling us that God himself has weighed in on this controversy. Paul has received this mystery, this message as revelation. He is saying this is what God says. And the mystery, the mystery is grace. It's that God gives his welcome to everyone and anyone, irrespective, irrespective of tribe, of nationality, of religious heritage, of external fitness. And these are the things that people had used for centuries to promote themselves and to get to God on their own terms. You see, that's the law. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Tell me how to be a good person and be acceptable to you, God, and I'll do it. But he's, the law has never called 
a mystery. Because the idea that you can be saved by your own effort is no mystery at all. It makes perfect sense. I do this, and then I get that. That's not a mystery. That's just math. That's just the law. It's grace that's utterly incomprehensible. It's grace that's counterintuitive. It's grace that's mysterious. It's the gospel that's a mystery. And it's only hidden in ages past in the sense that unless God wakes people up, unless he intrudes upon our most carefully guarded territory, unless he tears down this religious caste system, will people really discover him? That's what it means that it's a mystery. It means that it has to be revealed. God has to get inside your heart and your brain and your life and your body and turn you inside out. Then you get to understand the mystery. And when that happens, you say, Aha, I get it. Now I understand what God is up to. When you're reading a, a mystery novel, something I love to do, You're developing these theories. You're naming the good guys and the bad guys, and there's a way that you think things are going to go. You've got the plot figured out. And it's not until the narrator gets to the end, the big reveal, that you get it. And it may be quite quite different than what you expected. The narrator has to disabuse you of certain conclusions about where the story is going. And you see, though this was happening 2,000 years ago, we're no easily, more easily disabused of our notions about what the conclusion should be. We want to craft our own righteousness, our own sense of goodness. We want to live in a community that reinforces our own narrative, our own story, and upholds this religious pecking order with us at the top, or somewhere near the top at least. The Christian is enslaved to Jesus, is a prisoner of Jesus. And in order to become a prisoner of Jesus, we have to first identify what prisons do I live in presently? You see, prison is cramped and it's uncomfortable and we can't get out, but at least we know where the walls are. At least it's predictable. And we may not be totally happy in our prison, but we're comfortable there because it's predictable. And we have a sense of control. What are these prisons in your life? Maybe it's a prison of sin. Jesus has gone to the cross to pay for all of your sin. All of it. And yet you obsess about trying harder, doing more, getting better. You're still in prison. On one side of this cell is constantly believing or constantly thinking God is saying of us, I can't believe you've done that again. And on the other side of that prison cell is, I'll do better next time. I'm going to get better. I'll make you happy, God. You see, it's the same prison cell. It's just two different sides. It's the prison of sin. Maybe it's the prison of failure. And you know that you live in this prison when you're afraid to let others see you mess up. You're afraid to let others see you blow it. And we think that the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, means that we should be able to handle life without any big blunders. That's the prison of failure. Or maybe it's the prison of self-abasement. We have this constant need to talk about how bad we are, how little we deserve, how sinful we are, how far we fall short, and we can't stop talking 
about ourselves. There's many prisons, prisons of fear, prisons of the past, prisons of perfectionism. But what makes them all similar is that they're all about us. They're all about maintaining control, about knowing the boundaries and performing admirably before God. Becoming a Christian is being let out of those prisons. It's being extracted from those prisons because we want to stay in so badly that Jesus has to grab hold of us and take us out of the prison and enslave us instead to grace. We're still a prisoner, but we're a prisoner of grace. We're a prisoner of mercy. We're a prisoner of free access to God, not based upon what we do for him, but what he has done on our behalf. In him, verse 12, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. That's what slavery looks like in the Christian system. Freedom and confidence before God. What does that mean for us as a church? What does that mean for a church to be a prisoner? Well, in first century Roman culture, the pursuit of honor was all-consuming. What made life significant was being close to power, being recognized by influential people. Social ambition was everything, and setbacks to developing social capital, political capital, were devastating. You could be ostracized from your family if you dishonored them publicly. Now, according to Paul in verse 7, his position, his relevance in history was given to him according to the working of God's power, and yet he's in prison. Do you see what's happening here? The working of God's power has moved Paul to the very margins of society. This is turning the ambitions of the Greco-Roman culture upside down. How can anyone have power? How can anyone have influence? He's in jail. He's on the margins. And most Christians in the early church were on the margins. They were outsiders. They didn't have political and social capital. And friends, we can't understand this mystery of grace until we give up our social capital, until we give up our claim on honor, give up our pursuit of power and reputation. And this is just as tough in our culture to get and to understand, to be willing to do as it was in the Greco-Roman culture. Because though we fashion ourselves as very democratic, egalitarian people, we still live in much of our society in a meritocracy where we're seeking to be the best. We're seeking to be better than the person next to us. And that's how we grow. That's how we have influence. And being close to power is in our society to have influence. And even in the church, people get the message that to have more money, to have more cultural power, to have a broader influence is indicative of of God's blessing. And so we assume that God's triumph in the world runs along these same lines. More money, more members, the pastor having some platform locally or nationally being interviewed. And doesn't this trickle down to all of our daily lives? We want to make God look good, so we work for perfection. We strive for perfectly orderly lives. We make sure our children aren't causing problems, and they're progressing along to Christian maturity. We promote this image of a stress-free family that loves reading the Bible all the time, 
we strive to model good behavior instead of clinging to Jesus? What are we doing? What are we doing when we do that? We're driving ourselves crazy. And I only know that because I do it. I drive myself crazy with these ideas. What do we have to say to this meritocratic world in which we live when we've actually borrowed its measuring spoon? We're living by the very same standards. Do more, get better, be smarter, be richer, and that's how you excel. How do we get uninfected from that in the church? Verse 10 says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. The church is coming into existence in that day in a position of weakness, in a position where women had the same position before God as men, where outsiders were brought in, where eunuchs, the sexually exploited, had a seat at the table with those in power in the church. In utter dependence upon grace, this church came into existence, and that shows how God's wisdom is made manifest. In that, the church sees itself as a prisoner of grace, that we only exist because of his power, that we serve at his pleasure, and that we only have access to him through his grace and not our doing. That's when we begin to have something to say to the meritocratic world and to our own meritocratic hearts. Think with me about Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus has the opportunity to assert himself, to take up power, to grab headlines. And what does he consistently say? Don't tell anyone. My time has not yet come. And he rides into town on a donkey. And as he approaches the end of his ministry, does he change his approach? Does he cozy up to power to make sure that the Christians that come after him will be safe? No. Even though he claims in John 13 that the Father has given all things into Jesus' hands, how does he use his power? He gets up from the table, he takes off his outer robe, he ties a towel around himself, he pours water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet. He wipes them down and cleanses them with the towel that was tied around him. And Jesus is saying in action, embodied, this is how the church is to live that is going to be a prisoner of me. To be my prisoner, Jesus says, is to adopt these cruciform postures, resisting temptations to grab for power and instead to cultivate weakness cultivate weakness in the church and why why is the church to be weak why is the church to be made prisoner to be enslaved enslaved there's a a so thatness of this passage about the church his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of god should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. There are hundreds and hundreds of books on the purpose of the church, how the church is to grow, how the church is to be influential 
in the culture, more significant. And there's even more books on this subject for individual Christians, how you're to do more, how you're to do better, how you're to influence your neighbors. And as I read these, mostly I just feel tired and guilty. And the people that come to churches like that, that they come because of these principles, they'll end up feeling the exact same thing. They'll feel tired and guilty and haggard and oppressed. You'll know a church that's a prisoner to Christ in that it feels safe. It feels like a safe place. It provides a a soft landing for people who are tired of measuring up. It's not threatened by people who don't play by the rules, but it gives them room to be in process. And the Christian who's a prisoner to Christ, living out their purpose, isn't the one who's most busy, who's doing more than everyone else. The Christian who is a prisoner to Christ is set free from having to prove anything. They're set free to be themselves. They become the persons that you want to get help from. They become the persons that you want to be friends with. They're the ones who tell you, you're safe with me. You don't have to carry that burden around that you've been carrying for your whole life. Your sin doesn't scare me. They have learned to go to God with freedom and confidence, and they're happy to take you there too. That's what a a Christian who's a prisoner of grace feels like. They feel safe. They feel inviting. And if you just live out that, then, of course, people are going to come and talk to you because you're safe. You're a soft landing for people's hurts and pains. But you have to be willing to open up about them. You have to be willing to talk about them. You have to be willing to be seen, maybe for the first time, and that's scary. You have to learn, based upon the grace of Jesus, to go to God with freedom and with confidence. And then just be happy to take other people there too. As one person said, it's just basically being a Christian, living on purpose before other people. is just being a beggar who knows where the food is and inviting other beggars to come and be fed as well. And that's really our purpose here at in town. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would let us leave here excited about what you want to do through us. Not burdened, not feeling guilty, not feeling like we can't measure up and aren't doing enough, but let us feel, let us leave with freedom. Let us leave feeling liberated that you have brought us out of our prison cells. And Lord, let that Let that type of enthusiasm be contagious. Be contagious to people who are hurting, people who are wandering, people who are asking questions. Let us be in a place, in a position, not to share ourselves, but just to share you, to share grace, to share how you have remade us. Lord, would you let us be a church that does that? Let us be families that do that. Let us be individuals who do that. Only through you, only through your power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.